0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Twig26. Uh, we are here with Eric Sufert, who's a special guest with us today. And we also have Eric Kress. So we'll, we'll have two Eric's on our podcast today. And unfortunately, we don't have uh, Mishka with us today, but um, uh, you know Mishka is definitely very busy getting ready for GDC. And so today's podcast will be a little bit different from the other ones in that it will be UA-focused. And by UA, I mean user acquisition and Eric Sufert uh, heads platform at Network, and he also has a UA-focused blog called Mobile Dev Memo. If if you haven't uh, read Mobile Dev Memo, de- definitely um, recommend that you check it out. And, and Eric Sufert, maybe you could also just tell us a little bit about yourself and a- about your blog.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, thanks, JK, for having me. Uh, sorry, Miska couldn't make it. Um, <laughs> nice to meet you, Eric. It's, uh, well... To meet you uh, via via voice, um, I'm a big fan of the of the podcast. I listen to it every week, so it's uh, it's uh, it's really an honor to be uh, invited to participate. Um, so my background: so I work for a company called Network. We just launched um, last week a uh, an initiative that we call the Network Scale Platform, and I'm heading that up. Um, the Network Scale Platform is a partnership program for uh, game developers and also the you know broader uh, app development community where we partner with you, help you scale your app using our proprietary UA tech that I spent the last 18 months building. Prior to being at Network and heading up that initiative, I ran my own company um, and I built, a, a, I built a, a mobile marketing analytics platform called Agamemnon, which Network acquired. So I joined Network through the acquisition of Agamemnon and moved myself and my wife uh, from London to San Francisco, where I'm based now. Prior to doing my own thing, I was the VP of user acquisition at Rovio, which is the developer behind Angry Birds. And before that, I was at Wooga, which uh, is the Berlin based mobile gaming company, well, gaming company that just got acquired um, a few months ago. Uh, That was in the news. Um, I run the blog Mobile Dev Memo. I've been doing that for a very long time. Um, I think it's like six or seven years now. I also wrote a book called Freemium Economics, which I published in 2014 through the publisher Elsevier. Um, That's just about it.
0: Great. And one other note. So we also have a slight change to our typical format in that uh, Eric Sufert has also uh, mentioned to his Mobile Dev Memo Slack group to uh, submit questions. And so after we cover the articles, we may also be addressing some user acquisition related questions at the end. And so with that, maybe we can jump into the first article, which is uh, the problem with the 30% platform fee on mobile in three charts. And just to briefly uh, summarize the article, uh, which is essentially about um, Apple's announcement last month that it will allow developers to discount in-app subscriptions to current and recent users, so not just new users. And the author in this case, who who is actually Eric Sufert, mentions that while this change may seem trivial... He applauds this effort given big changes occurring in the mobile app economy and given that the 30% platform fee is being very vocally challenged. Um, Eric submits that Apple and Google do provide a lot of value for the current 30% platform fee, uh, including things like editorial services, curation, payments processing, and uh, management, but that... Uh, This act is a good way to preempt additional sort of developer grumbling over that 30% fee. Um, Eric also in his article suggests that um, a wholesale shift away from Google Play and App Store are very unlikely. Having said that, um, Eric then makes the argument for why Apple and Google really need to make sure that their platforms earn their platform fees. And again, uh, as per the title, through three charts. And the first chart is about global smartphone production forecasts and basically the the chart that Eric shows shows that smartphone penetration and increased quality of devices has caused smartphone shipments to contract fairly dramatically so the argument here is that there will be a shift from hardware sales to software and services revenue and so it'll be really important for the platforms to protect that 30 percent fee given the the importance of that revenue stream moving forward the second chart um, is the very highly retweeted uh, Fortnite versus Apex Legends chart from Roundhill Investments. That shows um, the A- that shows Ape- Apex Legends hitting fifty million players in two weeks relative to the number of players that Fortnite hit, and Apex um, is definitely more viral than than Fortnite. And uh, Fortnite actually, uh, if if you remember, bypassed Google Play. And the point being that um, one of the primary values of the app stores is discoverability. But um, if some games are able to achieve that discoverability outside of the stores, then this value is is greatly diminished. And finally, chart three is about uh, mobile data traffic by application category. And the chart that is shown is that video accounted for 60% of traffic in 2018, projected to grow to 74% in 2024. Eric then makes a point that Netflix stopped allowing users to register for the service via iOS devices. And so in an increasingly cross-platform world, developers will have the option of accepting payments, not just on their mobile device, but through web and and, and other channels, thereby bypassing the 30% fee. And so before we go to Eric Sufer, Eric Kress thought you could kind of jump in and give us some of your thoughts on this, article.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... Um, I, I kind of agree with those, everything in the article, but, um, you know, my thinking is that kind of this 30% thing is kind of here to stay. I don't know. First of all, I think Apple and Google have tons of leverage in the U S and Europe. Um, you know, without, you know, their, uh, online store, it would just be really hard to scale an audience. Um, you know, with the exception of Facebook, but I, I but at the end of the day, I think, I think they maintain, they they should be able to maintain that leverage uh, with the publishers. And then the point that he made about slowing device sales, putting more and more attention on um, software and services revenue, yeah, that's going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, a big issue for both Apple and Google. And I think they're getting um, much more aggressive and, and, and focused from the company on that sort of thing. And then the final point I'll make, you know, as much as publishers want to control their own destiny, you know, and have their own distribution, um, they just aren't very good at it, you know, generally. You know, like, um, you know, there's companies that kind of specialize in building out these communities or these storefronts, um, and that's all they do But is manage that. And I, I don't know if there's many uh, the publishers out there that actually can execute against this. You know, the one that has done a great job is Blizzard, right, with Battle.net uh, and Battle.net now with the service. Um, I think also Nintendo could do something like that. But I think Activision, Ubisoft, EA, and Take-Two... Japanese guys, I don't think they have quite enough content to like build enough ecosystem for commerce infrastructure. And I would argue that the Fortnite guys, um, you know, arrogance and going off Google, I don't know if that was really even a successful move for them. I mean, I, th- I, I imagine they probably got much more broad distribution out of the uh, out of being on Google Play. And just as an example, you know, EA has been building Origin for the last decade, right? And they've spent over a hundred million dollars building this the service. Um, And when, when they initially launched it like two or three years, two or three years after they had like 0.5 friends per account, meaning it wasn't like a social network. It wasn't a destination to be, it was just basically to facilitate the download of the game, you know, and no one was really interacting with that whole system. Now this may have changed recently, but, um, but I I just, yeah. I mean, it's just an example of them spending insane amounts of money on building something that already existed, right? You know, whether it was Steam or whatever else. Now, I want them to maintain margins and and keep margins for each of their, you know, their downloads and stuff. That's fine. But actually building a distribution channel with a broad product offering, I don't know if the publishers really have it in them. So that's kind of my thoughts.
0: Okay, um, Eric Sufer, do you, do you have any thoughts in terms of like whether the thirty percent platform fee holds as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that uh, that Eric just said. I so in previous articles, I I've written that I think a Epic was uh, not wise to um, to try to quote unquote self publish Fortnite on mobile or on Google, yep. on Android anyway. Um, I, don't, I mean, this wasn't kind of like um, widely publicized, but they actually had a lot of. Um, of uh, uh, like spam, um, kind of in—I I don't know what you'd call this. Like, the, the, they had a lot of problems with like fraudulent <coughs> Fortnite apps being um, downloaded. Um, they had a lot of problems with um, just distribution f- with the the uh, standalone installer, um, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that Google Play exists uh, to 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 prevent. Um, but I do think so. What I, the point I was trying to make with the article um, is that. I think there's a problem. There's a problem here, and they, they need to address it, right? So, like, the problem is that you do have um, an increasingly vocal chorus of people questioning why they're paying thirty percent um, to to the platform providers, and I think, in order to um, just just preempt any kind of like uh, really organized, um, coordinated uh, pushback from developers, they should be a lot more. Um, Clear and explicit about the value that they're providing with the App Store, and I think and the example that I used in that article was um, this new uh, mechanic for allowing new players to um, get a discount on subscriptions. That's a really that's a really great way of showcasing the value of the App Store, and I think Apple just needs to do a lot more of that in order to protect themselves against um, you know this kind of like orchestrated complaining that's that's um, that's sort of like bubbling up, right? And I think I actually wish. That I would have written this article this week because if I had, I would have mentioned uh, Spotify filing a complaint with the EC uh, uh, around um, around uh, anti competitive um, practices uh, uh, with the App Store against Apple. Um, they just did that, and I think that should be scary to Apple. I mean, and I think Spotify is striking now precisely for this reason, precisely because. There actually is a little bit of momentum of momentum around this idea that Apple should abandon the the 30% um, App Store fee. And if you read the complaint, they specifically called that out, saying, "Look, we can't raise prices um, because you know if we do, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, outpriced by Apple because um, Apple runs Apple Music and they own the hardware, they own the and they own the distribution platform, and that's unfair." Um, so I think what Apple and Google should be doing is is finding ways to make this very evidently not rent seeking. They should be finding ways to say, look, there's, it it would be, it would be insane to not distribute on mobile via the app store or Google play, because look at all the value that we provide for you. And there should like, once, and once you like sort of like overwhelm people with the value prop, they're not even going to sort of question um, whether there's sort of like any sort of anti-competitive practices, um, you know, at, at, at foot. And then, you know, the worst way to fix this problem would be through like government regulation, especially by the EC. I mean, I think the best way would be for Apple to very proactively address these value concerns.
0: Right. Okay, great. Uh, Moving on to the next article. This one was titled uh, high growth, low growth, no growth, systematic growth with Dow replacement. And I will um, for, for this article. I, I thought we'd keep it pretty high level. I, I, I know Eric in, in the article itself, you, you go into a bit of um, you know more specific detail, but just rather focusing on the high level concept. And, and feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm misstating anything here, um, <laughs> because it, it was a little little bit dense. But essentially, uh, the point that I think you are making here is that growth teams should be actively managing uh, their growth based on uh, DAU targets in that the fundamental characteristics to focus on if managing growth based on uh, DAU is retention and cohort compounding. So while growth teams could look at a lot of different things, um, there really needs to be a focus on on managing DAU and looking at, uh, again, those two key atomic units responsible to manage uh, DAU. And by DAU, for those in the audience not familiar, that refers to daily active users, so the number of players playing a game on any given day. Also, just speaking to um, the point on retention, I I think most people in the audience are already probably going to be familiar with what retention means, but it it essentially refers to how many players remain in the game after a certain number of days. So retention typically drops a lot for games, unless you're a game like Fortnite. But let's say on the first day that a a player, let's say that we, we launch a game, and on the first day, 100 users are there. Then uh, thirty days later, there could be uh, only ten of those players from that initial batch of hundred, or, or, or even uh, much fewer. And then, like on uh, the second day, we'd get another cohort of you know uh, of players, and then there would be uh, twenty-nine days later later there there would be a, a, a small number of players. And so, if we're trying to manage the number of players thirty days out, you kind of have to look at each of those cohorts of players on each of those days and, and and try to manage what that looks like. Um, so, uh, Eric Sufert, um, you know, just, just kind of, uh, taking to you now, am I correctly characterizing that? And then why, why did, why did you, um, maybe you could go into more detail about why Dow instead of say revenue or Mao or something else.
1: Yeah. Um, so usually when I write like an article that's kind of uh, more conceptual like that one, there was some catalyst for it. Like I saw something and it just uh, made me think or you know, bothered me. Um, I don't remember what the catalyst for that article was. I have been thinking a lot about this just sort of, you know, m- managing kind of systematic growth for a long time just because I think a lot of people don't do that. Um, and I started writing that. Art. I went to London la- two months ago in January for a conference. And I remember I started thinking about the article on the plane there. And then I wrote most of it on the plane back. And then it kind of just turned into that monster. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I released the, the kind of Python code um, for it as well. But I, so I think it's just the, if I kind of take a step back, like, and explain the motivation for the article, it's, it was really just like. Trying to explain how, if you're thinking about growing, you know, if you're thinking about build, building a business on, on on mobile, it the 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 core component of that is just how you're able to stack DAU over time, right? So how you're how you're able to grow the user base over time by retaining people, and so retention then becomes kind of like the. Uh, most fundamental and important atomic unit of your business, right? It's just how people s- stick around and then how how these cohorts stack on top of each other and then how you achieve actual growth. And I think a lot of people approach this um, from like a very high level top down perspective of like, well, okay, we're growing month over month, so we must be growing, right? Like if my DAU went up, if it was 100,000 last month or, you know, my average DAU last month was 100,000 and this month it's 150,000 we're growing. And, you know, that, that's actually, that could not be true. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's specifically true, I guess, in that case, it's like technically true, um, and semantically true, but you know, in the abstract sense, you might not be growing because you might be just sort of like, um, uh, you know, you, you might be, uh, paying for short-term DAU, uh, I don't know, increases that aren't actually sustainable, um, you know, from like a managed systematic, uh point of view and i think if you want to really do that if you want to like manufacture growth you have to approach it from like a bottoms up um you have to approach it from like a bottoms up perspective and say okay i'm going to buy this many users this month uh they're going to last in they're going to stay within my app this long or i mean i could you know i buy them i say buy them and that, that sometimes people see that as like a glib um you know, kind of like crass way to think about growth. But I, let's say I, I spend money on marketing. I get some users that come into my app. Some more come in organically. And I need to really understand um, how long they're going to be in the app and how my DAU grows on the basis of their retention if I understand my business. And I think a lot of people like, and this is applies to gaming and non-gaming, um, a lot of people just don't understand that. And so like growth kind of bewilders them. And it looks, it's, and then, you know, if you don't understand why, your DAU is going up, you're probably not going to understand why it starts going down. Um, and I think it's really, really fundamental to understand that, at, you know, at the most sort of like basic um, fundamental level if you're going to try to build a business on mobile.
0: Right. And um, just just to ask in terms of coming up with a DAO target, um, you know, the way I personally think about setting a DAO target is from more, more of a PL perspective in terms of like revenue breakeven and, or if you have some type of uh, operating profit margin target. But could you speak to like, you know, how do you think about coming up with that specific Dow target?
1: Well, in the article, so the article was talking about like, if I want to actually manage my growth, and let's say that my Dow target is 300,000, and I have 200,000 now, how do I get there? Yeah. Um, and it and then again, you, you, you would you would reduce all of all of the kind of, um, you know, growth hacking, uh, you know, tricks and tactics and all of the, you know, um, mobile marketing um, acronyms. You reduce all that down to just when people come in. How long do they stay for, and do they kind of compound? Um, and so I think you know, you're, you're that's exactly right. You 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 start with a revenue goal, like because you know you don't pay your rent with DAO. Um, my revenue goal is a million a month, and I have a hundred thousand DAU. Um, well, okay, so are they, uh, you know, or let's say that I have um, hundred thousand MAU and are they paying 10,000 or 10 bucks a month and if they are great i'm going to do 100 i'm going to do a million this month and if not like well okay how many more do, what are they doing like what kind of revenue do they do on a, on a monthly basis or on a daily basis and then how how do i start from my understanding of these kind of like contributing metrics um, and how do i roll that up into a monthly revenue number and i think what a lot of people do is like you know they just sort of try to hand wave a lot of this away and say like well you know i'm growing um, and so because my DAU is going up, uh, and so well, like I think at some point, you know, uh, I'll be doing this much a day, like this much ARP down, and so I'll hit my, um, I'll hit my, uh, my revenue target just by sort of straight lining the DAU growth uh, out for forever until it until I um, back into that, um, that DAU number times my ARP down number that gets me to my monthly. Uh, revenue target. And like that's just not the way you can do it. You have to really understand how the why the DAU is compounding if it is. Um, and then when will that get you there?
0: Yeah, I, I think for me personally, the, like the trickier part in terms of setting a DAO target has been like, let, let's say we're, we're trying to like the first goal is, um, is sort of, you know, revenue or is sort of break even then because, you know, as we're acquiring users, they've got, you know, nonlinear ARPU uh, curve. And because the payback windows can be so far out, you know, kind of the trickier parts is like, you know, do I do I set these Dow targets based on, you know, sort of life of product or do I try to hit a profitability target within a certain time window or something like that? I I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I don't have any thoughts other than just to say, yes, that's right. And it's hard. Um, And that's why, you know, that's why it's not super easy to build a big sustainable mobile business. I think the the ultimate point I was making with the article, though, is that like the fact that your DAU number goes up day over day or um, your average DAU number even goes up month over month does not mean you're growing in the conceptual sense. You are growing in the conceptual sense when you can predict that and you can manufacture it, not when you can just see it happening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, my my little two cents on this is. When we were at Kabam. We actually stopped looking at DAU altogether, and we looked at um, daily average customers because that was more of a predictor of how spending was going to ramp, uh, based on how many consumers customers were actually retained versus players. So we, when you get really crappy traffic from some of these services, you can you know boost your DAU and you know, everything's rosy and you're growing. But reality of it is if no one is spending, then you're not growing at all. So that's a, so our focus was DAC or daily average consumer generally or, yeah. So that's how we looked at it.
0: Right. Okay, great. Um, in that case, if there's nothing else left to discuss with that article, moving on to the third article, which is, Using machine learning to automate mobile marketing budgets. And um, apologies if this gets a little bit too much in the weeds, but maybe we can get through this, and then talk about some of the more sort of uh, you know high level or philosophical issues with with respect to how machine learning is being applied uh, in our industry. But this article was written by the director of digital marketing for a startup called Glovo. So this is uh, this was not written by uh, Eric Sufert, but was published on his blog. And Glovo has a uh, service that is hyperlocal and requires they launch new cities every month. And so they have to target new users in different geographies. And the challenge they were addressing is managing their marketing budget for user acquisition when each new city adds new variables defining their marketing budget. Um, And to allocate budget across multiple combinations of user targeting, uh, the author recommends an approach called um, a multi arm bandit. And this approach has its roots in uh, one arm bandit slot machines. And I think the way to think about it is that it's an approach where, you know, a kind of high level conceptual way is if you have multiple slot machines and you have multiple arms, this approach sort of maximizes how much money you spend on the different slot machines that gives you the best return. So, similarly for global, if they are, Uh, As an example uh, that the author mentions, if they are operating in, say, three countries, each with, say, four cities each, and let's say they had a marketing budget of 100 k per month, using this approach, the the approach would optimize how much budget you allocate to each of the three countries, um, each with a different sort of user acquisition type of campaign. And this is sort of the simple way to think about it, but in fact, there are a lot more variables. So geography... Channel, and by channel, I mean like different user acquisition channels, whether it's Facebook, Google, rewarded video channels, and many more, uh, platform, and et cetera. Then there are other variables, such as um, you know how much the competition is spending at any moment in time, the best time to increase spend per day, per week, per month, seasonality, and um, based on when, let's say, there is featuring or, say, offline brand marketing kicking in, kicking in and things, things like that. Anyway, with all of the different variables and potential to optimize marketing campaigns and budgets, the solution that Glovo recommends is to, to um, approach this via automation. So, using an algorithmic machine learning based approach, in this case, uh, multi arm bandit, and then by creating a set of rules around uh, customer acquisition cost or ROAS yield to help define, you know, These rules will help define when to increase or decrease budgets and bids and when to pause or start campaigns. So they essentially built an automated machine learning-based system that does all this. Uh, Then the author cites academic research that looked at various machine learning-based approaches, so not just multi-armed bandit, but other approaches, and concluded that um, an optimal approach actually blends various approaches together and ROI can increase by up to 30%. So again, um, my take on this and, and, and this article um, and you know, kind of went in a little bit in the weeds on this, but um, my own personal take is that uh, we know that machine learning based approaches against user acquisition works and, and you know Facebook and Google have been doing this for the past few few years and Facebook AEO or app event optimization, VO value optimization and Google UAC have performed extraordinarily well. Uh, since, since, those, um, you know, since since those products were launched. But now we're actually starting to see machine learning apply to different areas of user acquisition. And so a few other areas where machine learning seems to be getting applied um, is, for example, so um, Facebook AEO, which stands for App Event Optimization, is basically optimizing around players who do a specific event but for Facebook, um, that event is generally just purchase. Uh, but it's theoretically possible to find other to find another event um, like an upstream, uh, some kind of upstream event that happens before the purchase, that could also be very performant. And um, upstream events theoretically are better if 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 because you're looking for an event that converts a lot higher than like a purchase event that might only occur you know one percent of the time. And so anecdotally, I haven't heard of anyone making this work for Facebook AEO, but have heard anecdotally that um, people are getting it to work on, on Google with UAC. Uh, the second area that I'm kind of seeing machine learning being applied is through creative optimization. And there is a company with a user acquisition platform called Vidalgo, where they have used machine learning to help determine like, the best kinds of creatives or you know the, the, the ads to increase uh, conversion to advertising campaigns and using machine learning, they, you know, they'll track a bunch of different signals in terms of like whether it's color size, different properties of the creative, and they'll use that to automatically generate new creative briefs. And finally, it's just like auto creation of marketing campaigns themselves, including the machine learning based generation of targeting geos, you know, sort of bids as key variables to optimize. So Uh, Eric Sufert, did I get this right? Do you agree with this with this assessment? And and sort of, you know, do you have any a high level take on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, first, firstly, it's it's a fantastic article. So I would, I mean, I didn't I didn't write it, uh, but uh, it's a fantastic (laughs) article. So I would definitely recommend anybody that's interested um, in this facet of UA to to go and read it. Um, I I so I think. this is UA now. Um, this is how it's done. And I think the, the paradigm shift kind of already took place. Um, and you have not only the channel, like the largest channels operating this way, like so you mentioned AEO and VO on Facebook, I would actually throw their budget, their new budget optimizer tool in there.
0: Right, um,
1: that, that, you know, the, these basically like back, black box algorithmic, um, you know, optimization mechanics that... Um, basically, kind of uh, abstract away any of the like useful data that you'd be able to then go and apply. You could take and then go and apply to other channels. They abstract that away, um, and they take like kind of complete ownership of it, right? So that's like a strategic. Um, that that's a uh, that's a strategic move on their part because um, you know the 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 more they're able to. Um, obfuscate that from the end user, then the, the the more dependent the end user becomes on them uh, for these performant campaigns, right? Because you can't then take that those the, you can't take that knowledge, those those optimizations, and then go apply them elsewhere, right? And so you get to this decision right. point where it's like, well, I've got to start from zero with some other channel, or I just continue with Facebook and give them more money. Um, but but so that's that's been happening for a long time. But then I think what is sort of like taken root in the last year. Um, is that the, these approaches like like as is described in this article um, are being um, are being constructed on the part of the advertisers um, and that was kind of the, that was a large part of the impetus behind um, building out this network scale platform that we built was that um, we saw we saw the ability to like really build competitive advantage through that um, and then that's why you know that we've created like a business out of it now in, in, you know, in making that accessible um, to third party devs but I think, um, you know, if, if you if you look at how this landscape has changed since like 2015, 2016, UA was just like button clicking, right? It was like logging into Facebook and you'd have your BI, um, you know, interface on one screen and you'd have, you know, your Facebook UI, Ads UI on the other screen. And you say, okay, this BI output is telling me that um, iOS users that come from Facebook and... Uh, the U.K. are worth $3.72. So I'm going to bid $3.50, um, and then that'll be profitable, right, if I acquire those users. And and the, the BI output was, was uh, you know, that was calculated on, like, a 180-day basis or 120-day basis or whatever. Um, and that was UA. And so I think, like, it was it was basically data entry. It was basically taking this number from the left uh, monitor and, and inputting it in the field in the right monitor. And now... Um, because of the stuff that Facebook and Google is doing. And, and to be fair, I mean, like Unity's got um, these retention-based campaigns. I'm pretty sure uh, some of the other channels do as well. But, um, you know, the, the networks are, are handling a lot of that for you. And so then what is your job as a UA team? Your, your job as a UA team is to, A, um, build deep analytics uh, to parse out the right events to send back. Um, and that could be on a, you know, on the broad sort of like, um, universal level for your app where it could be within a geo, it could be whatever, you know, you could subdivide that, you know, in any way. Um, the other is to use this kind of like bandit approach to, to balancing your budget. And so like, I think one thing is like the, the, when people describe the bandit stuff, it sounds more complicated than it really is. It's really just basically taking some prior set of assumptions, um, and updating them as you get more data, but then also like constantly experimenting. Right, so you like you allocate, um, you know, uh, attention or or whatever uh, to 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 the, um, you know, whatever focal points are working based on like, based on, on historical data, and then at, and then but you also continue to experiment with all focal points just to make sure that you know there could be like some sort of like underlying uh, underlying systemic change in the way that they perform. So that kind of approach is really good for balancing budgets. It's what it's what Facebook's budget optimizer does. Um, and a lot of companies are taking that in-house now and saying, okay, I'm going to use this banded approach to, to to allocate budget to wherever it's best being spent. And if I change that sort of like historical performance um, calculation window, I can basically be reacting to real-time changes in the composition of the traffic on these networks, right? Because I think one thing that people don't, um, I don't know, acknowledge, right? So if you think about like a Unity or an AppLovin or whatever, um, if, if you just look at especially now, if you look at, like, the top downloaded chart, um, it's, pretty vol- it's, it's pretty volatile at the top, which is kind of strange, right? So, like, I think three, four years ago, the top downloaded chart at, like, the one through ten was kind of stable. But now you have these hyper-casual games that just, like, rock it up to the top because, like, they're super viral. Um, so if you think about any channel that's got um, – that's, that's got – that's brokering that traffic – um, the traffic composition is going to be, like, really volatile too as a result, right? And so if I'm not reacting kind of in real time to the composition of, like, the traffic on Unity because the latest Voodoo game went to number one and it got, like, 50 million installs in a single day um, or whatever, and it's, it's that's, like, all the impressions that I'm buying on Unity are coming from there or AppLovin. Um, if you're not reacting in real time to that, then you're basically not um, bidding... On the basis of the way that uh, you know, uh, of 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 uh, you're not bidding on the basis of like the where the impressions are coming from from any given channel. So the faster you can react to those changes, the 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 more um, like kind of scientific your bids are going to be. And I think you're seeing a lot of companies come up with these sort of like budget optimization uh, algorithms, like the one in the article. But there's there's other approaches um, that that really make this not like you know. Looks something totally different than what UA was a couple of years ago,
0: right? And and to your point about like UA becoming more of a black box, and you know, and we've increasingly see like very broad targeting outperforming narrow targeting. For for example, um, in, let's say in two to three years, how does that change what a UA team looks like in terms of whether it's skill set or even the size of the team?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of what you already alluded to, right? So it's you you need analysts um or you know probably more appropriately um designated data scientists who are building these kinds of um data products so our i can describe what our team looks like so our team is we have a lot of emphasis placed on creative so we actually Mm -hmm. built a a, like a creative production like an automated creative production tool um that is similar to the one that you described but so ours is is um we were able to produce like variants of creatives, but we're also able to produce like new concepts, like really quickly, right? And because my, my sense was, then like, kind of my thesis coming into this job at Network was that this was all gonna become like very algor- algorithmically um, uh, dependent. And so how do you, how do, how do, how do I as an advertiser um, lean into the, to this new environment? Well, there's a couple ways. One is like I figure out which events carry the most signal to any given channel. To, to to then help them optimize for the best traffic to send me, and then the other thing is like I figure out I I experiment like very very rapidly with creative concepts to help um, reach the best users um, from uh, you know from that early the earliest stage in the funnel is like is the, is the is viewing the creative right like that's the actual the, the earliest the earliest point in in any sort of like user lifecycle. Is viewing the, the ad creative, right? And so, how do I experiment really, really rapidly um, and very, very like radically, broadly uh, with creative? And so, part of that was building this tool that automates the production of creatives, um, and that also allows us to group those um, in a meaningful way, so that we can programmatically create more of them when we see them working. Um, so, I think that's it. I, and I've I've I have a presentation about this on my website, but it's your your team looks like analysts plus Artists plus like a little bit of media buying. Whereas before it was like an art, if you think about like the most performant, like, you know, Hall of Fame UA team in like the pre 2016 era, it was MZ with, you know, 5,000 media buyers. Um, and if you think about it now, it's more like, you know, a team of data scientists plus maybe like
2: one or two media buyers. Right. I got a question. So before I ask this question, I want you to know that uh, your reputation precedes you. And even though we've never met, everyone oh, no. talks about how you were like the guru of this stuff. And of course, Neil Young can basically sell ice to Eskimos. So he was part of your fan club, just, just to be clear. Anyway, my question is like, from my perspective and looking in the investment side, um, companies like Glue and EA and King all talk about their prowess in terms of UA is is ua now not becoming a real competitive advantage like it used to be i mean is the fact that the it's more of a creative exercise than than um you know optimizing media buys is that does that mean that they can't really claim that their ua processes give them a competitive advantage um well
1: firstly i assume that any kind of like overly flattering premise uh, to a question like that was going to be followed by a very critical uh, <laughs> uh, question. So thank you for not, uh, for not following through on that. But I think, yeah, I, maybe. I mean, I think, so to me, you, you, a real competitive, so I think if you think of the UA team as this independent group of people that just does media buying, then no, that will never be a competitive advantage. What a competitive advantage is um, for, especially a, ga- a mobile gaming company, is when the UA team is so deeply embedded with, um, with the product. They're, they're so deeply attuned to the product lifecycle um, that they've basically merged the funnels, right? So I think when you think about UA as like a separate funnel and then you think about the product lifecycle or like, like the retention profile as a separate, um, as being independent of that, you lose, right? Like that was to your point about Kabam. If you bought crappy traffic, like the numbers break. Um, If you think about these as like sort of like one contiguous focus, like like I said, if you think if you do truly extend the the um, product lifecycle all like forward all the way to the um, to to viewing the first ad impression, and those teams are like so tightly integrated that they understand how you can get a really um, powerful feedback loop going from UA to product and then back to UA again then I think that could be a competitive advantage. And I think what the real competitive advantage is is the analytics that um, underpin all that and allow for that to happen. So I don't think like a team of UA, of media buyers is a competitive advantage anymore. Actually, it's probably a liability um, because, you know, games are uh, cyclical, right? I mean, it's a hits driven business and you've, we've seen companies that have huge UA teams having to lay them off, like when the games, um, you know, when the, when the, when the revenue deteriorates. So I think, uh, and also, just you don't managing lots of people is hard, and it's hard to do efficiently and effectively, and, and it just adds overhead. So I think the analytics and the um, that infra- that core infrastructure can be a competitive advantage. I think the team is is not. It's generally more of a liability. Gotcha.
0: Thanks. Right. And uh, Eric Sufer, to your point, I I think one of the other trends that I've been seeing in the last year or two is that there have been more like cross-functional um meetings between like a live ops team and the ua team and um at at least in in my own personal experience i've seen that more so within the last year or two
1: well Um, yeah but then but then let's go back to eric's point i'm i'm a big multi uh i i I, i'm a i'm a company with a centralized ua team and a very broad product portfolio how can my ua team possibly uh, if it's this centralized, independent, sort of like autonomous team, how could it possibly be best in class? Because best in class means I'm getting the best possible outcome for my games. Well, if I've got like a generic UA team and I've got a broad portfolio of games that um, that that spans casual, that that spans super core, that spans idle clicker, that spans whatever, how could they possibly be best in class? I mean, that that's that's the problem. The infrastructure can specialize. The people. If they're centralized just can't from a capacity standpoint how could i be an expert in idle clickers and hardcore rpgs and uh i don't know whatever um you know name it you know you name it different game mechanic like i can't the the infrastructure
0: can't right that's a really interesting point um great and then so one last question with respect to this article so what what do you think is the next frontier in applying machine learning whether it's to user acquisition or You know just generally in in terms of games
1: um that's a really good question i mean i think um i've seen a lot of cool stuff happening with um dynamic content and you know i I don't i'm not trying to be self-promotional but you know that that's one aspect of our platform um and that's not but that's not i'm not flagging that just because of that um i think you you if the, the the more granular and personalized you can get the experience to the to the player Um, i think the the better it's going to be i think if you so my my sense now is like in and actually tim sweeney had a really cool article about this Um, it was like his thesis was like we're going to see more like disruption and innovation in games in the next five years than we saw in the last 10 and i my and i i agreed with the article but like you know sort of like um tangential to that is that I feel like we're redefining what games are every day. Like if you, going back to the first article that you cited, you know, the, the smart, smartphone penetration basically is topped out, right? And every every almost every, you know, human uh, I mean, I, I, in the developed world has a smartphone, right? And so, yeah. you know, and they play a game. Almost certainly they play a game. Or they have a game installed on their self, on their smartphone. And so like everyone's a gamer. And I think if you think back to, like, my definition of gaming came from, like, just my, you know, own personal experience, uh, you know, growing up in, you know, suburbia and buying the new uh, console every year or two. And, but, like, if you think about someone growing up now, like, what is their definition of a game? Is it, is it Angry Birds? Yeah, probably. That probably falls into the definition. Is it uh, TikTok? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Um, they, do they play that in a sort of gamified way with their friends? Then maybe it's a game. Um, You know, and so like to me, it's there's so there's that frontier of being able to like build personalization into that kind of stuff. That's super, super exciting. And the question is, look, okay, well, is that a game? Well, I might not think so, because my definition goes back to like Mario one on NES. But like someone who's grown up and their their sole kind of like interactive um, communication and uh, collaboration and cooperation device is a smartphone. They think TikTok's a game. Um, and, and they've gamified that. And, and if you think about all the, the sort of like the surface area of personalization on a TikTok or whatever on a Spotify, um, you know, it's, it's just so much more vast than this kind of like linear, um, you know, like pr- pretty well-defined, um, you know, I- interactive, um, system that, that we would call like a game on, you know, like an angry birds kind of thing. And so I, th- I think that's super exciting and that stuff is we're, we just scratched the surface.
0: Got it. Um, And so with that, Eric Kress, if you have no other questions or comments, do you want to take the last article?
2: Why don't we just uh, run through this one? So I think this article kind of similar to the first one, but but basically you're this is your article. And we were you're talking about how, you know, this new epic mobile store that's probably in the works um, um, is a sign of times to come in which potentially there's more fragmentation of of discovery and stores created or opportunities created and for more tailored experiences of discovery right so rather than uh go to a store and look through all try to discover that way it's within context of what you're doing i suppose kind of what that would look for me so for the example you gave was a um you know you're looking at the maps and then it gives you a advertisement for a scooter service or Facebook Messenger just gives you access to, to games that are, you know, suited for Messenger, et cetera. So anyway, I guess, is that pretty much what the, the, the article was kind of trying to hit at? Is that kind of right? Yeah, sort
1: of. I, I think my, my, the, the point I was, I was trying to make there is that I think if you, if you think about, like if you say, hey, 30% stuff, a lot of pushback, um, people are sick of the duopoly, or they're sick of Apple and Google. Uh, sorry, the duopolies, uh, Google and Facebook, they're, they're sick of Apple and Google and they're pushing back and there's going to be a new app store that's going to come out and it's going to be an app on your phone and you click on it and it opens up and there's a storefront, that's wrong. That's never going to happen. Um, I think you have, if you define an app store in the very narrow sense of being like this app that you click on and it, it's a it's a catalog of other apps you can download, That's I don't think that's what the next sort of... Um, evolution of app stores look like I, my, my sense is that it, you take these big brands, these massive um, you know, the, the default apps, the go-to apps on your phone that everyone has and they could potentially branch out into being you know, distributors of apps that are like, that exist around the periphery of them and so the, the you know, like the example there is and Google Maps, is that not an app store now? I mean, if I click, if I search for directions, it shows me I can't remember which scooter company, but a scooter company that I can click on and open that app, it shows me Uber, it shows me Lyft, and I click on those and it it they have adjust links in there. They they attribute opening up the Lyft app on my phone. So is that not an app store? I think that is what app stores are gonna look like. That that sort of like next, um, the sort of the next, the next turn of, you know, the sort of like um, evolutional uh, you know, a growth cycle is those things being app stores that are kind of like um, Constellations of apps that aren't developed by the same company, but are within the same kind of theme.
2: Yeah, you know, I I somewhat agree. I I just want to be clear. I I mean, I really think that it is very unlikely that you'll be able to purchase apps or uh, through um, different storefronts. I mean, they're still going to get send you to the app store, right? Like the 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 traditional way. So you may discover it in a different way and in a more appropriate way. In a lot of ways, but but they're still going to be driving you to the store ultimately.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's my point, right? Like that's the store is the store and that doesn't change. So like, yeah, you could call that the discovery function. Maybe the discovery function gets abstracted away. Um, although with, uh, instant games, I mean, that is the store, right? Like they don't, they don't pass you through to an, in store. It's an HTML5, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, the instant catalog. games
2: are so small out here that, that I think they're not as getting much scrutiny. I mean, maybe you know more about this than I do, but I talked to a few people about this, um, cause it came up in a, in a research thing I was doing, but, um, it's really huge in China, but it's very small here. Ultimately, I think Apple will, you know, will crunch down on that if, if it's becomes more, um, Material, I would think anyway, but no, you're right. It is, it, it's
1: small here. Um, and I, I, I wrote an article like, like three years ago that I, I, where I thought Apple and Facebook are going to go to war over this. <laughs> like I thought Apple's going to crack down on Facebook because they've, they are operating a store within a store. I feel like there may have been some back and forth between them and it, it was agreed that Apple, Facebook's not really going to push this too much. Um, but I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah, you're right. It's, it's small enough to not be meaningful, um, and to not create a new paradigm. Um, but that's just for Facebook.
2: Yeah. And the, the, oh, sorry, the other point I want to make, kind of talking about the 30% again, and I know I'm kind of like focusing on this, but you know, we already talked about the fact that Apple's seeing slowdown of hardware. And from the company perspective, you know, softwares and services are going to be more important, important for them to grow going forward. Google is also seems to have a lot more scrutiny as well in terms of the profitability of their departments with the new CFO that they hired, um, my understanding is that there's far more pressure on each, each individual um, units to be profitable. So historically, the Google Store was not really focused on, you know, driving revenue and stuff. But the new CFO seems to have started a kind of having growth, profitable growth across all functions, including the store. So anyway, both these companies seem to be in a place in which there's going to be even more pressure to maintain margins, right? Not, not to actually reduce. You know, the 30% to 20%, or something like that. Um, and I don't know if that pressure that they're going to feel from on top at these companies is going to be re- relieved. And despite how much the publishers complain and bitch and moan about, about the percentage they're giving up. So I, I think that's kind of working against uh, the concept of, of, of different distribution models and, and lower percentages for uh, distribution.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, I mean, to your point about the CFO, didn't they also uh, cut back the funding for that like moonshots division, right? I think because th- it just was, it was a black hole for money. Um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I, I think I, I read that. I'm, they cut like the budget way down. Um, yeah, no, but that was, I mean, that was my point in the article, right? It's like, here's a problem. The problem is hardware sales are slowing down, um, you know, and you've got to find that money in, in, in services now. So they can't reduce the 30%. They need it. Um, and so, but, you know, what do you do, um, to, uh, to, to quell this, 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 this growing, uh, discontent? Well, I think the answer is you just, you just deliver such an overwhelming, um, sense of value add that like people stop considering this a tax, right? Cause like a tax, tax isn't, I don't know, it's not the right word for it. I mean, it's an opportunity, right? It's not like, uh, I mean, I, you know, the, 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 uh, blogger, um, that does stratetery. He always calls it like rent. He calls it like rent seeking, and I feel like that's a really weird way to put it because I can remember a time before the app store pretty clearly because the app store's not that old, when it would have been unthinkable to distribute apps on mobile. I mean, like I had a crappy Motorola Razor and like they had a few apps like pre-installed and I think they had like this this just dumpy you know, web store where you, you know, in half the times you downloaded the apps and they didn't really work on the phone. Cause it was a different model than it was developed for. I mean, I worked at digital chocolate and they, they had this huge portfolio of these, um, you know, the, the, the pre smartphone apps. And it was like, it made a lot of money, but they, they all like, there was just so much overhead in maintaining them because it was, you know, it was, it's almost impossible. Oh yeah.
2: To, Dude, like, I was, I was, I was at EA back then and they were, they were a full boat into, you know, uh, old school phones and they had like hundreds of variants of each different <laughs> title because they were doing it on all these different yeah. devices, right? It was a nightmare. And it couldn't be profitable yeah. because, first of all, the revenue wasn't being driven very strongly. But second of all, the cost of maintaining and managing and optimizing against all these different skews of phones and, and carriers and nonsense, it was terrible. It was just a terrible thing. It was more of a exercise yeah, so- in... in project management than actually publishing games. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. And then as a result, you know, the quality of the software is really low because you just outsourced all of it. Cause you couldn't really afford to maintain yeah. a team. So like, then how, so how is this development of like, probably like the most innovative marketplace um, in human history, how is the development of that? And then also saying, Hey, we're actually going to take a little bit of a cut. How's that rent seeking? Like yeah, rent seeking no. to me is when you have an existingly existing functional market, and then you just insert some sort of, friction in there, um, to, to extract money, not when you create something that allows for like this amazing economy to blossom and also say, Hey, we've got to, you know, we're, we're going to also take some money out of this because we created it and we facilitate it. Right. So I think the key, so I don't agree with that idea that it's rent seeking, but I think you've got to like, you, you're going to have, I think just given, given these developments, And the Spotify thing to me is probably the most um, impactful because they, they actually filed that complaint with the EC, but But given these developments.
2: Yeah. But you you have to be clear, like they're in breach of some type of anti-competitive thing because they have a similar service of their own that they are pushing through the same channel. Right. So I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to claim that I know anything about the law, but I'm saying like that is a clear case, similar to the case that they had when, when they were, embedding explorer within windows right so they have a case there but they're not going to suggest that you know selling games or you know uh, clash of clans is going to be competitive against anything that apple's doing because they, they don't have any business they don't make any games you know what i'm saying it's, it's a different
1: well yeah but, but but the argument for the clash of clans or the non you know I, I get your point about the if there's the competitive product that's distributed with the hardware. And you've got the hardware, and the the problem with the the going back to the Microsoft thing, it's like, well, how do I, you know, you've got the the hardware, and also the the tool that I need is pre-installed, right? So like, you've got the hardware, you have got the iPhone, and the service, and also like, so Spotify to compete with is hard to compete with, right? And I get your point there, but the Clash of Clans people could say I can't distribute my game in any other way on your hardware except for your service where you extract thirty percent. I think that's a fatuous argument, but that's what people are saying. I mean, and not Clash of Clans isn't saying this, but I've heard this from other developers, like. The only way I can distribute my product on your hardware is through your service, where I have no choice but to pay thirty percent. Again, I think that's a fatuous argument um, because it's an, it's an opportunity, not an obligation. But that is the argument that a non-competitive app developer would make. Yeah, I,
2: I just don't think they're going to get very far with that. But I mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> Who knows? No, I, I and I'm and I'm one hundred percent with
1: you. I don't think so either. Um, but I do think it's in Apple's best interest if they can continue to d- to, d- to deliver to deliver these value add features, like the uh, like the um, the subscription package, uh, uh, the subscription mechanic, that just alleviates that question. Right? It's just overwhelmingly right, positive right. and a great experience and very valuable for me to operate on the App Store.
2: Hey, can I ask you one random question? I should probably take this offline, but I'm going to do it anyway. If if you have the expertise, let's say in in machine zone for instance in 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 doing ua for hardcore strategy games does that experience then lend itself to doing like a puzzle game or is it completely different skill sets for for optimizing against different different genres of games
1: no i think the skill set is the same so you know again this, this goes back to like how do you define this like the Pre twenty sixteen era or the current era? I think in the current era, yeah. The skillset, the skill set is can I model um, can I model a uh, you know rowas um, you know can, can I can I model the sort of like rowas curve um, based on the way that this game uh, get, like players in the game um, spend like so if I borrow the model from you know whatever uh, puzzles and dragons the LTV model, like the LTV curve is not going to apply to uh, Candy Crush. Um, So if I'm just trying, if I just say, look, I'll just borrow that model and then I'll I'll build all my infrastructure on top of that model. That doesn't work. But like the, the mechanics of doing UA aren't different. Um, Now I think you need to be able to envision different art concepts for the creatives. You need to be able to model the underlying LTV curve um, and have some sense of what they look like, you know, a priori, any sort of data coming in in order to just prime the pump. But if you can do those things, like the actual mechanics of doing UA don't change from genre to genre. How about the notion
2: that the, the the audiences would be different? So targeting those audiences would be more unique, whether it's with art or actual UA or I don't know where they are. Or, you
1: know, Yeah, but I think people think of that as like overly deterministic. Like I don't go into, you know, setting up a campaign and I say, I know the audience is this and therefore I target them and no one else. That's a process of experimentation. Uh-huh. And it should be. It should be even if you are doing a hardcore RPG game for the thirteenth month in a row, and you've been successful at that for the last twelve. Like you should be experimenting with new audiences, just because. I mean, even if, you know, you know, because because the, these audiences saturate, and you're always going to have to be sort of expanding the the breadth of your targeting anyway. Gotcha.
2: Yeah.
0: Um so just going back to the article maybe I can ask one question and then hopefully we'll have a, a, have a little bit of time to squeeze in some some you know Q&A from from your Slack channel but um the the question I wanted to ask just going back to discoverability in, in the app stores um in previous podcasts we had talked about uh, Epic and there was a podcast or a blog in Russia that where somebody from Epic had talked about how reviews and ratings weren't really um, influential with respect to purchase decisions, but that they felt that influencers were. Um, did you have any thoughts in terms of not only like sort of, you know, uh, the contextual stuff that you talked about in terms of next generation app store, but have you thought about how influencers can get integrated into the app store?
1: Into the app store? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think influencer marketing can be really powerful, and I think it, but it's just so hard to do right. I mean, it's as hard to do right as is performance marketing. I mean, like, okay, as, sorry, as, as uh, you know, digital media buying, mobile digital media buying. I, I won't get into the performance brand uh, thing, but like, I, it's, it's, it's as difficult to get right as is buying media digitally. And so I think people look at that as like, um, almost an alternative. It's like, hey, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to build a UA team because that's hard, but I can, do, I can do influencer marketing. That's easy. And actually, it's not. It's, it's actually just as difficult. And so it takes, you know, that same level of, of investment and infrastructure and uh, expertise. Um, I don't know how you integrate that into the app store per se. Um,
0: yeah. I think like Fortnite or Epic had like the, their creator program and some other things like that. Um, oh, I see. But um, and, and then they share revenue um, if an influencer sends some of their, you know, some, some of their followers, To the store that buy uh, a product, something like that. But um, um, okay. Anyway, uh, you know, were there any questions from your Slack channel? There's one,
1: Um, and I think that it's a good question. It's it's a good question to address to the group. So it was from actually a buddy of mine, Josh Burns. Um,
0: Uh, Josh. Yeah.
1: He runs uh, a company called Digital Dev Connect. Uh, question is: A new game launches. Version A is generic. Version B is exactly the same, except integrated with a tier one celebrity slash license slash IP. Assuming the only game promotion that is happening in CPI is CPI ad buys, which has the lower CPI? By how much and why? Uh, so, JK, maybe uh, you have some experience here, and maybe you could start. Uh,
0: in, in terms of like the impact of uh, of an influencer or the impact of a brand, I'm, I I do think that having I mean, I mean, we've seen the exact scenario that um, that Josh mentioned happened with you know Kim Kardashian Hollywood. I mean, the game existed as something else; it wasn't very successful. And then when Kim Kardashian jumped on, um, it became very successful. I mean, I think in my own personal experience, depending on the strength of the brand, um, what the the um, I think the advantages are one that because of the the brand recognition that you just get. Uh, not not necessarily like an uh, a impact on CPI and, and buying, but just organic installs, right? So you'll get a, um, a mass number of organic installs. And this is true for um, probably the, the greatest example of this are, are runner games. So like, you know, here we have Minion Rush at uh, NBC Universal. When I was at Sega, we had uh, Sonic Dash. And so just the sheer volume of organics that you're getting is is extremely helpful. But then... Also, because of the brand and because of, you know, the, the, the front end, met, um, because the strength of the brand is going to increase your front end metrics. And by that, I mean, like um, the conversion of players that, that come to the store that, you know, I, I think um, ran some studies of previous companies that showed that you can actually get. Um, a CPI reduction of about, you know, 30, 40, 50%, depending on the brand. Yeah,
2: I've... Uh, but we, yeah, please, please let me know your, your bit, perspective as looked at as well. uh, Hobbit versus... I mean, this is old school stuff, but the Hobbit versus... Um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of the original game. But anyway, it was it was cheaper to... Was that? Yeah, sorry. Kingdom 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 Kingdom. Kingdom. So it was much cheaper to Kingdom acquire Kingdom Kingdom. the Hobbit Kingdom. user base. Um, and, but the challenge was, is that the actual uh, LTVs of The Hobbit were lower than the the original game. And actually, if you do the same analysis for um, Kim Kardashian versus the original game, or there are a few other examples of that, you could see that you do get a step down in terms of uh, LTVs because... As you're getting these organics, they're more interested in the brand. They may not be interested in the gameplay that that, that you're you're selling. So it's uh, it's more of a challenge to monetize. So that's the kind of way we looked at it. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: it's it's tough. I mean, when you go shopping for IPs, uh, it's it's tough to like narrow that shopping list down to stuff that you feel overlaps pretty well with like the core mechanic uh, of your game. Um, like I wrote a post about this a while back called like the, uh, the power triad of resonance. And it was like, your, your mechanic has to match like the kind of theme, uh, the, the tone. And it also has to match the theme. And if those three things kind of aren't working together in concert, you're just going to be appealing to the wrong users. Right. So like, if I've got a core game and it's like, cause I'm, I did a presentation about this one time and I said like, okay, um, Kim Kardashian works great. Like you wrapped the Kardashian brand around this existing game, which which, which uh, coexists very well with the, the um, or let's say overlaps very well with Kim Kardashian's audience. Now, let's wrap the Kim Kardashian brand around uh, Puzzle & Dragons. Does that work? No. I mean, those, that audience doesn't want to play that kind of game. And so you I think it's, it's, but it's just like, I, I feel like sometimes when you go shopping for an IP, it's like, that's a corp dev exercise. And so they're going to go find a really good IP at a good price. That's popular. And it's like the, I think the, um, you end up just operating across different metrics. The, the the biz dev team or whatever is going to say, and, and I've seen this happen at, at you know with with the comp- some of the companies I was consulting. Biz dev team says this has got a huge reach. Look at how many people follow this brand on Facebook or whatever, or how many how, look at the Nielsen ratings for the show. And it's like wow, that's huge. So our game, we want to be huge with our game. So that's clearly what we should do. And that's just not just the wrong. It's like a too simplistic way to think about it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think to your point, um, Eric Sufert, um, about matching the audience, I, I do think there has to be some level of matching the audience with not only the gameplay but the meta systems design. And to your point, Eric Crest, about the lower LTVs on Hobbit, you know, it, it's probably uh, because of that that um, the matching of the audience. I, I think you could also make an argument that depending on the audience, let, let's say you you, you created a you know, turn-based uh, or uh, tactical RPG for the Warhammer audience. Um, Warhammer being very hardcore, you, you could potentially see like an increase in terms of LTV relative to a generic audience. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I think that that point in terms of matching yeah, the audience to, to the gameplay and the systems is important as well. Okay. Um, well, I think we had a really long podcast uh, over an hour, but um Definitely some great stuff. Thank you very much, Eric Sufert, for for joining us today. And um, for any of you who are going to be at GDC, if you see Eric Sufert, please uh, ask him about their new product uh, at Network. Um, and make sure you read his blog at MobileDevMemo. Right Thanks, everybody.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. Bye.